I don't think having a lot of watches makes you cool. I don't think spending a lot of money on one watch makes you cool. I think being excited along the new collector that just got their first Pogue or their first Black Bay makes you fucking cool. I think taking the time to learn so much about one model that you write a collector guide to share with everyone is fucking cool. Um, And I think it's particularly awesome to see people who have collected everything and written books and have 12 Jorns at home still get excited about a swatch from the 90s that they've never seen before on the wrist of someone at some collector meetup. It's very easy for this space to become ostentatious very quickly. And the counters to that, at least in my head, are enthusiasm, kindness, and sharing what you know. Hello and welcome to the Hairspring Watches podcast with me, Eric Gustafson, and your co-host, Max Braun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening uh, to episode three of the Hairspring podcast. I'm Max Braun, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Gustafson. Uh, We are really thrilled with the results of the first two episodes. We've got a lot of listens. We've got a lot of great feedback uh, from everybody. Um, and we're really excited to keep doing these. So as always, please don't hesitate to reach out with any feedback, uh, positive or, or constructive, and uh, it'll help us decide the direction in which to take future episodes. So really looking forward to it. Um, Eric, why don't you introduce the first segment for today? Sure. Uh, we're going to get straight into it with this one, with a topic uh, that I think is sure to upset a significant portion of our seven listeners, which is always good practice. Uh, we're going to ruminate on the following, which is, Watches that have most fallen from grace in their current iteration versus the original. Now, just to preface a bit, these are simply personal opinions of two watch guys. We spoke in the last episode about the state of watch media, independence and journalism and what that means. And we're now going to lean into the fact that we can talk about whatever the fuck we want with a conversation around watches that we believe need to try a bit harder. But these, are, these aren't the views of Hairspring, uh, just two slightly dim, overly obsessive enthusiasts ranting a little bit. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, conflict in the Middle East here. They're, they're just watches. So keep a healthy perspective around these things. But with all that preamble around the way, uh, Max and I have both picked three watches. And we're going to start at the bottom of our list and work upward. So Max, what is your third pick for modern watches that have most fallen from grace versus their original? Okay, so for my first pick, I have the Rolex Explorer reference 1016 uh, to the modern reference, uh, and there are three of them. So the 40 millimeter example is the reference 224270. And then there are two references for the 36 millimeter model. There's the 124270, which is uh, the steel uh, reference. And then uh, there is also the 124273 which is the infamous two-tone. Um, so, you know, in conversations with vintage enthusiasts, the 1016 is sort of bound to come up. Um, I think whatever the through line is between appreciating vintage uh, and appreciating the t- 1016 uh, is, you know, people are just drawn into it. It's like you can't have one without the other. If you appreciate vintage, you appreciate the 1016. If you appreciate the 1016, you appreciate uh, vintage. The, the 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 Venn diagram, so to speak, is the entire circle. Um, and I think the reason for that is is that it's one of Rolex's purest designs with com- uh, when combined with very utilitarian uh, sort of characteristics. Um, you've got the 36 millimeter size. They put it uh, on a bracelet. 
Um, the the dial layout is very clean. It's very elegant. It's very simple. It's very legible. Um, and so, for that reason, you know, I think a lot of the community views it as a perfect hybrid between a, kind of a dressier sports piece um, and that versatility and and kind of clean design is, I think, what really lends itself to the tastes of uh, of the vintage community. So. Fast forwarding, uh, call it 30 years uh, to the end of the 1016, or, or I'm sorry, from the end of the 1016 to the modern uh, references. You know, if you were to line the two up next to each other, I think you would see a lot of similarities. You see Arabic numerals at 369 and 12, still very clean dials, but you know, a lot about the watch has changed. Like, I think you would agree with me, Eric, that the, the case construction is very different. It wears much thicker now, the bracelet much heavier. Um, they changed the, the font, which I think is probably one of the most critical uh, design changes that they've made. Um, of the 369 and, and 12, I don't really know what to call uh, the, the style of, of the modern numerals. Um, and it feels... A, a, a watch. It feels to me like a watch that's a little less capable of straddling, sort of the dressier and sportier worlds. And to me, today the watch feels much uh, more on the sporty side. And I, I think that, in a way, is sort of commentary of the direction Rolex has has taken over the last, call it twenty to thirty years. As it's really leaned into the louder sports uh, or sportier arena. Um, so I, I kind of appreciate the antiquated stylings of the 1016, but we're talking about two totally different worlds in, uh, the explorers. And it's not just because of things like the tritium dial it's because of case size, case, case thickness, bracelet construction. Um, they're, they're just, t I mean, I don't even know where to begin in comparing them, but the thing that I think most saddens me uh, about the modern explorer and look, we're talking about what is objectively a fantastic watch. Rolex doesn't care what we think. They're going to sell out every single one they can make. But I kind of I kind of check out when you can't really wear a watch elegantly on a strap anymore. And I know everyone's going to come at me for saying this, but I think that the current Explorer is kind of just on the edge of case height where it starts to not look so great on a NATO strap. I think the sub has already crossed it, particularly the maxi case generation. But I think the Explorer is getting damn close. Um, and that's that's what really makes me sad because the old Explorer was just one of those adaptable watches that would look great on anything, whether it was a bracelet or suede in the summer or a nylon NATO in the winter, you know, whatever you kind of wanted to wear it on. Um, and then another thing about this design is that <laughs> the the uh, Luminous 12, that's not a 12, whatever you want to call it, the you know triangle indice, it's uncomfortably close to the coronet for me. Uh, the, there was a little bit of breathing room and minimalism in the 1016 dial, and the sense of space kind of got lost for me as soon as that triangle indice wedged to the point where it was almost touching the top of the coronet tip. But that's just a graphic design thing that drives me crazy. There's a thing in design called uh, accidental tangency, which is where things look like they're touching even if they aren't because there isn't enough breathing room between them. And this is one of those instances for me. But that's a very pedantic point. Um, I stand by your assessment on this. Number three for me too. You know, the other interesting thing, and I was thinking about it as you presented the the prompt earlier this week, uh, 
I'm not sure I know anyone who owns both a 1016 and a modern, even like even a modern-ish uh, reference of uh, of Explorer One. Um, so th- it's a very different watch today. It appeals to a very different crowd, uh, and that's okay. But um, you know, to to bring back the Venn diagram analogy. I don't know that there's much of a, a middle portion between 1016 fans and, and fans of the more modern references. No, and here's here's a more interesting meta point is, do you think that that is necessary for a good design? Of course not. Like, do you think that watches should take the Porsche 911 tack of always constant steady evolution? Or do you think that there's something to be said for kind of revolution and wildly different follow-ups? I, I think I sort of have an issue with the premise because you can consider something to have good design uh, in a vacuum, right? And unfortunately, Rolex is a very old brand. Like many of these watch brands that we discuss frequently are very old. And so as vintage enthusiasts, uh, our point of reference for comparison is always going to be to the vintage models that we like so much. And so, of course, we're more drawn to the vintage models. That's the lens through which we're going to be judging the modern watches. And I don't really know if that's fair. I mean, Rolex, I mean, I'm almost certain Rolex doesn't care that we're doing it, right? Because they, they sell these things by the truckload. Um, but just because we prefer the older version doesn't mean that the modern version is bad design, right? Um, clearly, they're doing something right. People are buying them. People love them. People enjoy them. They work for the purposes and, and requirements of the modern-day watch consumer, um, and I think that's not necessarily uh, evidence that it's good design, but it's certainly strong evidence. That is a very fair point. Well made. Uh, I, I take it. Um, okay, I'll start let's off stop, with... Let's stop beating up the Explorer. <laughs> We're going to win no fans with this episode. Okay, I'm going to dive in with something probably equally contentious here, which is uh, the Omega, or for our English friends, the Omega Constellation. Um for me, Vintage Constellation was like Mad Men dress sense in a watch. It was a 50s dad for your wrist. And it was it almost had the kind of elegance that a Calatrava pulled off, but with a slightly more masculine case, a little bit of water resistance, and often like mild complication, like a day or a date or both. Vintage Constellations are still one of the best and most accessible entry points to vintage watches today. Um, I, I think an outsized value proposition with a lot that you can learn about. Two references that I love in particular are uh, the 168.017 and the 167.005, the latter of which is probably what you think about when I say Vintage Constellation, kind of a pie pan dial with a date and a, a very classic vibe. Uh, many of them had fantastic lightweight bracelets to match, uh, and it's it's just a very elegant watch. Moving on to the modern incarnation, uh, if you go to the Omega website and you click on Constellation, you'll see that there are two watches that are currently filed under that heading. One of which is the Globemaster um, with its C case, kind of in 39 millimeter, a range of metals, a range of dials, as you would expect. Also comes in 41. And then the second thing filed is what I'm going to attack, which is uh, what you want to call the true constellation or the constellation constellation. I'm not really sure what the uh, proper verbiage is, 
But this is a god awful creation in my in my lens, <laughs> and it's just not cohesive in, in really any sense to me. Um, the bezel has Roman numerals and two kind of inserts of metal contrasting ceramic colored ceramic uh, that kind of mirror the shape of the crown guards. Um, there's a weird kind of intersection that looks like it's meant to be integrated, but a strap takes its place. Uh, it's it's just a bit ungainly, and it's still an objectively excellent watch. You know, Omega calibers are highly technical, beautifully engineered. If you know, not beautifully hand finished, they're still very impressive technical marvels. Um, but what really kind of depresses me is what this range could have been compared to the Constellation. If you look at the way the Calatrava evolved through the latter half of the last century, um, probably peaking around the Neo Vintage era. It just got better and better by focusing on its strengths and re- kind of refining that core set of strengths. And the Constellation did the exact opposite, I feel, kind of wildly experimenting and latching on to whatever the modern trend of the time was. Um, I feel like it it's really just a shell of its former self, paid minimal attention by Omega just because the name is too, too strong to axe it off. Um, it's not awful, but it's just not attractive to me. It's a watch that's on this list, not because of how horrible the current watch is, but because of what it could have been for me. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a good pick. Um, to me, when I look at the evolution over time, it almost seems that Omega defines a dress watch or a Calatrava by like what's like the complication right <laughs> which it feels ridiculous to say because a complicate or a uh, calatrava or a dress watch shouldn't really have a complication and so it's strange right to to see so many of their quote unquote dressier watches today have such uh, cluttered dials um i think the globemaster won fans uh when it was initially released gosh what was it probably nine years ago i think people, a decade. yeah yeah i think people liked that they had a blue dial i think people liked that the watch was manufactured in steel i think people liked that they were kind of shouting out the past with the pie pan dial um but the watch is just huge like it, it doesn't really make sense for what it should be and it, it always felt like a design miss to me and one that always looked better in photos than uh, it felt on the wrist. So I, I'm a huge fan of uh, the older dressier stuff. Uh, Seamasters certainly fall into that category. Uh, I think they represent pretty awesome value, particularly if you can find one in good condition. But I, I don't really know of anyone that chases them. Uh, in fact, and when I do see them on the market, it's usually, oh, I got this from my dad or my <laughs> grandfather. Or, or whatever, and it's usually somebody looking to sell it in order to to get something new. Um, so it's unfortunate. I, I definitely think the vintage uh, examples, like a lot of vintage Omega, is overlooked, and I wish people would pay closer attention. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I know a few people. Um, I wouldn't use the word collect, but I know a few people who are interested in Vintage Constellation, but they're all kind of 10, 16 people who have just fallen off the edge, you know, even harder than we have. And they're just looking in the most obscure corners possible, which I have a lot of respect for, but it, it, it's such a niche. I mean, it's a very fun quarter because how many different Seamasters and Constellations are there? 
I I'm guessing hundreds. There have to be hundreds, right? If not more. I I particularly love in the in the 70s. I don't know if you followed this at, at all, Max, but it even grew an integrated bracelet and looked almost a bit Royal Oak adjacent. There's a there's a 70s constellation day date that I've been chasing for ages, and I, I the reference escapes me right now. I'll be able to figure it out and maybe put it in the show notes. But there's a constellation day date with an integrated bracelet that's beautiful, and they made just a handful with a green dial. I've only seen one for sale, and I still want to chase down another one. It's like a I don't know, call it a thousand dollar watch, but you just never see it. And the bracelet is like a mesh, right? No. So the, the mesh is one, but the one that I'm thinking of is really a proper like integrated link bracelet. Um, oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. It's a cool thing. I would like to see that. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some good scholarship out there and mega enthusiast basically chases this uh, category exclusively. Um, and he's put out a lot of good uh, scholarship and uh, YouTube content um, about this stuff. And it's it's a lot of fun. I, I don't really see Omega ever returning to watches like this. Um, I, I think their core customer base really appreciates the, the bigger stuff with showier dials. But um, it, w- it would be nice if they could scale back kind of the, the dressier pieces, but. We'll just have to keep chasing the old stuff. Yeah, we can hope. I think the market for that is basically us and all of our listeners. But um, we're a few, but we're proud. You want to move it on to your second pick? Okay, so I cheated a little bit with my second pick. um, And it's going to echo very closely to what we just talked about. So my second pick is less a watch and more of a category. Um, I chose Rolex dress watches. Um, Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) All of them? Well, there's not that many. Okay. All right. Carry on. But yeah, all of them. I mean, shit, I could have done Rolex watches <laughs> generally, but, but um, yeah, so I really, I was really thinking of three references um, in this category. So in vintage, there's two uh, that most immediately come to mind. The reference 6062, which is kind of their, uh, what would you call it? Maybe their their calendar reference. Um, you usually see these with the uh, subsidiary seconds at six o'clock, the moon phase, and then there's different iterations of the dial. Some uh, you know, some have the star indexes, some have the pyramid indexes. There's the Stern dial, which is more of the uh, arrowhead uh, rep, uh, indexes with kind of that classic font for three and nine. And you've got the paddock style date ap- or a day and month apertures, uh, up closer to 12. Um, and then you have the Patalone, uh, the reference 8171, which is sort of a uh, close cousin to the 6062. Um, so that's, those are the, Two that for me kind of typify Rolex dress watches. I know vintage ones, at least. I know people are going to throw their arms up and yell at me about date justs and date dates and whatever. But uh, to me, the 6062 and the 8171 lend themselves to being actual dress watches slightly better. Uh, than any reference of uh, date just or, or date date. Certainly, you could wear a date just or a date date on a strap and wear it to a gala or a black tie function and be perfectly comfortable. Just to me, the 6062 and the 8171 are, are slightly dressier. Just a personal opinion. And then on the modern side, um, they have whatever the fuck they're doing now. The uh, 1908 or whatever it is, and I think it comes in both yellow and white gold and then I believe there's a white dial and a, and a black dial uh, to choose from. So 
Um, you know, and then I mean, for the longest time, obviously, they had the Cellini series, which has always been a dog. So um, that era uh, of Rolex, the 1950s to the 1960s in the dress category, Rolex and Paddock for me are neck and neck right there. And I think people probably think of Paddock as being generally just a dressier watch. So that's really saying a lot, I think, about Rolex. Um, very clean designs, very slim cases, um, ways to convey complications without cluttering the dials, uh, watches that have aged uh, very warmly uh, in a lot of instances when they've been preserved well. Uh, we've seen a few come up for auction recently. Um, and, and I just love them. I mean, they're very rare. They're virtually impossible to find in great condition. Um, and they're exceptionally collectible uh, versus whatever you have today, which kind of feels like a half-assed example to, you know, sell a dress watch to a person who doesn't really care about what dress watch they have. Um, you can't really hold a candle to even the date just and, and day dates of, of years past. So very disappointing. Um to, to see where things have landed with the Cellini line and then uh, more recently today with the 1908. Before people take to their keyboards to attack, I just want to say we're using the word or the phrase dress watch in the loosest sense, which is a watch that makes sense in a dress context today. A lot of people think a dress watch can only be a three-hander. You can wear a Patalona to any black tie event and you're going to be just fine. A dress watch isn't what it used to be. Um, granted, a three-hander, a Calatrava is still the classic definition, um, but you know we're, we're using the broader sense here. Max, this brings up a lot of thoughts for me. Um, I've always been really disappointed that there's been nothing done uh, with the roots of the Cellini line, either around like an integrated King Midas or a Queen Midas or um, just anything really following that lineage. I think that's a great missed opportunity. Uh and even like if you look back to the way the Midas evolved from the Genta design with the Parthenon inspired case to the the square kind of more um, almost TV looking integrated bracelet, I would have loved to have seen whatever the next step in that was. I think um, there's a there's a um, there's a gentleman in New York called Phil Toledano who is an artist and a fantastic collector who's actually personally taken on this challenge of trying to recreate something that's a kind of very brutalist industrial modern take on that design language, um, something to look forward to. But uh, I don't know. The Rolex dress line hasn't made any sense for at least two decades, I think. And it continues to be totally confounding. In the 1960s, when Rolex wanted to step out and make something insane, they wound up with the Midas. And like, how cool is that? If you took away the logo and the name on the dial you would have no idea that was a Rolex. You would think it was a Piaget, like an oversized Piaget or, or something along those lines. It's the most un-Rolex Rolex, Rolex uh, that I can really think of. Today, when Rolex wants to step out, they drill into the case and insert stones, like <laughs> on a Daytona or something, you know? Like, it's just, it's just like they used to create a whole new watch. And now it's just like, let's make a rainbow, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, uh, let's insert 4,000 stones on a sky dweller and have it cost $850,000 or whatever. Uh, so, you know, it's just very different. Um, and, you know, I'm sure people appreciate some of the modern stuff today, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, we've got that vintage bent. 
And the other thing, um, the the first thing you mentioned about people being angry about the definition of dress watch, I also get a lot of, well, how can a dress watch be steel? Mm. I love that one, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, if if you really want to play that game, it's like, well, technically the the metal of the case should be matching your hardware of your studs and your cufflinks, right? So if you're wearing if you're wearing a nice uh, sterling silver or um, some other white metal uh, studs and, and cufflinks, I say go steal all day. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, you can take that rabbit hole as far as you want to, but uh, I just wanted to uh, defend you a little bit because no no one reasonable is going to say that a 6062 star dial is not a dress watch in the modern context. Yeah. And I also, by the way, I think a lot of people feel like they need to wear a dress watch on a bracelet. You do not. I, I think it's a great look to wear a watch on a strap. Now, it doesn't even have to be black. Like, I've worn brown leather straps on what I consider to be dress watches uh, to what I would consider to be dressy functions uh, a lot. And, and I think it's kind of an understated look. It's it's a nice... Uh, kind of gesture, I think, to to show up to a function where everyone feels like they need to dress up with sort of an understated, more casual piece. So Yeah, it's funny. I actually, I, I take the opposite tack. Default dress watch in my mind is, you know, a 96 on some very nice leather or suede or something similar. Yeah, you can't beat that. Yeah. Well, bringing it back to bracelets, um, I'm going to follow on with uh, my number two here, which uh is unfortunately, and I know it's not necessarily a modern watch anymore, but go with me here, the 15202 Royal Oak Jumbo, and in particular, the second generation. And I have a lot of gripes with this watch. Um, First and foremost is that this was the generation and the reference where AP decided to disregard the brilliance of Gento's original design and went to a three-piece case instead of what used to be a monoblock, which was the way he penned it, meaning the movement is um, top loaded. So when you service the watch, you have to pull the dial and the movement out from the top when you take the bezel off. The whole bottom of a 5402, an original Royal Oak, is all one solid piece. And because they moved to a three-piece rather construction, uh, it was both cheaper to make and also considerably thicker, like noticeably thicker side by side. And it's under the same reference, which confuses confuses a lot of people and honestly is a is a little bit like mischievous i i have um many qualms with benamias uh but this is probably first and foremost and this isn't where it ends uh the rotor design was simplified to remove as many interior angles as possible so that it could be machine finished to whatever extent they could uh a lot of the plates have a very rough industrial costa genève um it's it has a taller hand stack so that idiots could assemble it. So if you if you look at sorry I shouldn't say idiots. Um, so it was less painstaking to assemble. Uh, but the original fifty four hundred two and many Royal Oaks up until this period had a very very narrow clearance between the bottom of the hand stack and the top of the AP logo, like on a on a very very fine tolerance so the hands had to be installed extremely carefully or they would catch the top of the ap logo in almost every royal oak made from the original until this um and then in this generation they made a taller hand stack so that it was easy to assemble in service which in and of itself you know it's not a huge deal but this is a watch where i take a lot of pride in its genesis and the details that made it what it what it is and this is one of the fun things that i used to like talking about and then they removed it um and then this was also this the series where uh, Stern 
Stern's, Stern is a dial manufacturer and their contract terminated in this series, which meant that AP brought their dial making in-house. Um, and by this point, it was already kind of not what it used to be anyway. The, the tapisserie dial of a Royal Oak is, is a fantastic thing, uh, but it's kind of been on this uh, degradation generation by generation. Uh, the tapisserie's gotten larger with less defined edges. If you look at an original 5402, um, which is... There's a fantastic article on this on um, on a website called AP Chronicle about how these dials were made, and it's it's multiple layers of hand guilloché that forms a pyramid base uh, with then a radial cut textured on top of the pyramids and a diamond cut texture in between all of them. It's it's just, it looks like it's just um, kind of like a checkerboard from a distance, but as soon as you loop an early Royal Oak dial. There is so much more going on than you think from a distance. Um, it's a very impressive feat. And then when you get to you know fifteen two hundred two or later, and I, to be frank, I haven't looped to sixteen two hundred two. But when when you get to this generation, it just looks like a square with a little bit of texture between it. And to me, that's kind of the soul being lost. And maybe a Royal Oak is more for case people, but I find a lot of the soul of that watch is in the dial as well. Um, and look, this isn't, this isn't even as bad as a lot of the offshores and, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, mid-sized cases where they, where they have what they call mega or grand tapisserie, which is just stamped. It's not even milled in any way. Um, so there, there's a lot of modern AP that disappoints me, but this is one in particular that's very easy to objectively kind of point out where they went wrong. On a positive note, the 16202, I think, did correct many of these faults, but not nearly enough to make me love it, like even half as much as any Royal Oak with a four-digit four reference or the early five digits. Uh, in some, it kind of feels to me like a Royal Oak made to the lowest bidder, uh, so much so that they forewent Gento's original design criteria. Just a bummer. I hear a lot of people try to criticize the modern Royal Oak and all they can really come up with is that it doesn't have a quick set date. All those people need to write down everything you just said <laughs> because because who gives a shit about a quick set date when you know, you're basically losing the soul of the watch um, to look at a 5402 versus one of the more contemporary references is a study in fine craftsmanship and handwork and painstaking design and watchmaking versus, hey, we can do this cheaper on a CNC um, or by developing a mold and, and just printing. So, you know... The, the modern examples have no soul in them, as far as I'm concerned. There are a few modern uh, APs that really sing to me, I, I think. Or I shouldn't say modern APs, uh, although I guess it would be true for modern APs, but I should have said modern Royal Oaks. Um, the exceptions would be the ones where there are, are actual orological feats um, and impressive developments in the movements. Um but if we're comparing a 5402 to uh, a 16202 or a 15, what are the, what's the reference of 15202 or 16202? Right. Correct. Yeah. Then, I, I mean, it's no comparison. I mean, it's like comparing a 1960s Ferrari to like a Camry today. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> it's just not even, it's not even in the same realm. Um, I'll, I'll, and also, 
you know, I, this is kind of becoming a recurring theme. I'm, I'm noticing as I, you know, ramble f- through these uh, episodes is like the context of the release matters. And I, in my opinion, like kind of, you know, props up the, the, the um, not props up, but like sort of adds or detracts from the quality of the watch. And when the, obviously to not to beat the dead horse, but when the 5402 was released, it invented a new category in watches. And if we look at Royal Oaks over the last, call it 40 years, you know, you have the QP, uh, which, you know, that rolled out in the late 80s. Uh, so if we look at 1990 until today, I mean, what is the most impressive feat that AP has? Uh, well, here's the thing. I think AP's RD series, they're kind of technical, experimental uh they're not even concepts because they had the concept series that, um, you know, make of that what you will. But the RD series maintains a lot of the Royal Oak proportion. Um, like I'm thinking of the RD2, I think it is in particular, um, with very impressive engineering. But the problem with that is it's not accessible to anyone. They make a handful of examples. They sell them to their, you know, VVIP clients. Uh, and they never really see the light of day after that. And to me, for a watch... For a watch to be interesting, you really have to have some chance of coming into contact with it in your life. It can't just be a show pony that, you know, winds up at, S- or sorry, SIHH doesn't exist anymore, at Watches and Wonders or one of these, you know, one of these trade shows and there are 10 made and they all go to Dubai or wherever. It, it, there has to be some chance of it kind of appearing in your orbit, wherever that might be, for it to be even vaguely interesting to me. So then can I play devil's advocate for a second? Yeah. So when the 5402 came out, I think, the view was who in their right mind would spend this money on a steel watch, right? So is the RD today kind of what the 5402 was uh, in the early 70s? Well, I don't think so because it's not serially produced, personally. Yeah. So, so what is – do we know what production is on the RDs? No, is we don't. Like a couple dozen a year? We don't, but I, I would – hazard to guess you're probably not far off with that yeah i mean it's a fair point right like what 5402 was made although the price was insane at the time it they wanted to sell them versus rd is like it's almost like they're making it for a museum or for only watch or something like they, they there are just so few quite right so that's a great pick I, I mean i mean you could kind of a lot of these picks that we have is is less about the watches and more just like generally Vintage versus modern, so I think it's good to talk about. Um, whose turn is it? Is it my turn? It's you. You're on number one. It's my last pick. Drum roll, please. Yeah, hit it. The the other Genta, <laughs> fifty seven eleven uh, today versus a thirty seven hundred yesterday. Um, We're gonna have no listeners left by the end of this episode. That's fine. <laughs> so yeah, I mean the thirty seven hundred hot on the heels of a fifty four oh two. Uh, one of the greatest steel watches ever made, in my opinion. Um, I used to be a 5402 guy. Now I'm kind of more in the 3700 camp. Um, I, I used to like the 5402 because I appreciated the more defined edges uh, on the case of bezel. But I've realized over time that a 3700 just wears much better on the wrist. And I think it's because it's a softer bracelet, uh, more supple case. Um and it, it's it, it almost feels like there's a camber uh, in in the case back to fit your wrist, but what that really is is just slightly better lug design um, and a silkier 
bracelet. So, you know, there's not, I, I don't really need to dwell on it. I mean, I think everybody understands how great the original reference is and is drawn to its design and understands how its significance in, in, um, in watches, but like even in the market today. And then uh, on the modern side, the I guess the prior reference was 5711. We're on to the 5811 now, although they don't, I don't think they make the 5811 in steel. Uh, they probably make a couple and sell them to VIP clients, but uh, at least they're not serially produced. So we're still waiting for a steel version of a 5811. So I think if you want a modern uh, Nautilus in steel today, you have to get a complicated model. Somebody will check me on that. But um, like you need one of the calendar versions or, or something. Um, yeah, they, they lost the bracelet construction again. Like it's going from truly handmade uh, you know, great design, handmade, painstaking watchmaking to CNC machines. So they've lost their warmth. The cases don't wear as well. The bracelet feels cheap operating. Uh, the movement is a whole other story. It feels very light uh, and to me cheap. Uh, I will say like, I, I do think the 5811 is an improvement over the 5711. I, I think the movement feels much better to operate. I think the bracelet is slightly better. I, I don't really notice anything materially different with the case uh, or the dial, but I do think the bracelet and the movement are slight improvements. I, I don't particularly care for either. I wouldn't rush out the door to buy either, but um, I, I guess maybe they're making baby steps in the right direction. So um, what say you on this one, Eric? Uh, a few thoughts. I mean, the construction of the 5711 bracelet has always been a thorn in my side. Um, it, it's pin sleeve and on a watch that is selling on the secondary market for, you know, double RRP, that's not acceptable. And I think that's been corrected, uh, but that's always ground me the wrong way. Uh, it's just a cost cutting measure that shows up and you feel it. Um, but this, I don't know, we're, we're talking pre prior about Royal Oak and now we're talking about Nautilus. So I just want to have a brief segment to compare my thoughts on the two. I've always thought of the original Royal Oak design as being the more kind of brutally industrial, kind of masculine, hard facets. Uh, and the Nautilus as kind of the more feminine, you know, flowy, graceful, um, you know, uh, kinder, slimmer proportions. And this isn't a new take, you know, this has been said ad infinitum. But I think that's just really important for people to understand when they approach. I think a lot of our listeners maybe won't have approached one of these before. And it's good to keep in mind when you put them on your wrist that your views on these things will evolve over time. Um, and certainly for me, my views on the Nautilus started out as what the fuck is that? The bezel looks like it hasn't finished rendering. I don't like the way the bracelet looks. This is hideous. To actually really kind of falling for it in maybe the last, I don't know, call it five years uh, when I when I came to appreciate what it stood for. And I've always never really liked the fact that the Nautilus was originally designed as a bit of a me too, frankly. Um, you know, people saw the success of the Royal Oak and how well it was doing after a few years. Uh, and it didn't take very long for other brands to catch on and say, well, we'll do something similar. But um, I think there is a lot of genius in that design as well. Uh, and, you know, People are going to have different views on it. The design is one thing, but I don't think you can criticize uh, your views in the sense that the 5711 doesn't really hold a candle in any objective sense to the 3700. Yeah. And I will say, like, maybe this isn't fair, but I just hate going to the paddock website and you go to the Nautilus section and there's how many executions 
of the of the watch, right? Like, oh, that's a good question. Do you have it up right now? Let me take a guess. No, let's do an over or under here. I'm going to say off the top of my head, I bet there are 22 iterations of the current Nautilus. I'm going to say 30 and I have not looked this up, but I'm on the website right now. All right, uh, we're going to do some movie magic and edit out the time it takes us to count, but uh, let's figure this out. Including the ladies' models, there are 32 executions of Nautilus <laughs> in, the, in the modern catalog, which is incredible. Like, when was the 3800 introduced? A few years after. The ni- in the 1980s, Yeah. right? So we're basically talking about two executions. I mean, you can, okay, or you can, I guess, inflate that a little bit if you account for the different metals that the watch is manufactured in. But they were two references for, what was it, 20 years? And and now there's 32 in the catalog. That, like, it's just ridiculous. Like, it, to, and to me, th- this applies to other brands. And I think it applies to this last one that we're going to talk about, your pick, is I, I hate it when brands do this. I, I hate when they iterate over and over and over again on the same model. It's like, oh, we added a new dial color. Oh, we added a date window. It's it's the same watch, and it just feels cheap and lazy, and it feels like a way to extend the catalog for many years without actually putting in real R&D and and doing the work. Yeah, drastic catalog expansion is usually a sign of lazy thinking. Not always, but most of the time. I I agree. And by by the way, this is uh, as big an issue as as it is to me with the Nautilus. It's even more of an issue with the Royal Oak. Um, Mm, Absolutely. So, you know, if, the, if we're saying if the Nautilus, if there's 32 executions, I mean, can you even begin to guess how many there are of Royal Oaks? I don't even want to. No, I don't want to guess. guess. I, I mean, but I, this I, is a more systemic problem than it is to just Nautilus and Royal Oak. This is this is brands like focus grouping clients instead of having thoughts for themselves. For sure. Um, I'll move it on to my number one pick, the Hoyer Ottavia Chronograph. This is not going to come as a surprise to many people, um, or maybe it will. Uh, but to me, the original Atavia was everything that was cool about 60s and 70s Formula One and just motorsport in general, smoking in the pit lane, grid girls, death in a blazing inferno, <laughs> uh, particularly um, the early um, screw back cases, the 2446 and the 3646 Atavias. They're some of the most attractive chronographs ever made. And you get nicknames like Yock and Rint and Siffert and Lauda and Andretti. Uh, it's just all kinds of 60s and 70s cool. Um, but then, like many of us, uh, the Ottavia reached middle age. It got a bit fat, kind of lost its edge. I think that era is still kind of cool. Like the C-case um, and some of the tonneau shapes that came afterwards, they're not really as aesthetically beautiful, I would argue, but they still have a lot of cool factor and quite a lot of uh, history behind them still. And that also introduced the automatic. Yes, yes, quite right. The C cases introduced the automatic movement, so it had some utility to it. Good point, good point. Uh, and then we kind of just lost all semblance of hope, I would say. When, when TAG appeared on the dial uh, and we kind of overcame the quartz crisis, the Atavio became a field watch, kind of time only a shell of its former self uh, for many years until 2016 when the chronograph came back uh, and when it did, well, this is a less objective assessment than my Royal Oak was, uh, but it's just passion. Uh, Max, if I were to tell you that this case is 16 millimeters tall, (laughs) would you believe me? 
I would not believe you. It is. That's five millimeters taller than a Zeitwerk with its 415 components. It's half the width of an original Calatrava. <laughs> it's wider than Amy Schumer. <laughs> it's uh, it's a millimeter thicker than my Pelagos, which is rated to like a thousand meters. <laughs> yeah, no water. Okay, so the crown has this double knurling that makes it look like a tractor wheel to me, but that's not nearly offensive as offensive as the pushers, which have this fake knurling at the base of them to make it look like they're screw down, but they aren't. And then there's a date window at six that's been given no kind of integration or thought at all, and it, it interrupts the sub dial and it's not even centered on the sub dial. It's just kind of placed on there. Um, the caliber O2, I don't even know where to begin. Um, it, it's not it's not a horrible thing, uh, but it's had less you know attention paid to it than your local incel. And even worse, they, they painted the column wheel red to distract you from that. <laughs> it's like, here, guys, look, red. Uh, it's just ungainly. It's misproportioned. It should have a solid back. And to me, it's emblematic of LVMH strategy. Um you know, I'll cool it maybe a little bit. It's not as objective as my, you know, Royal Oak rant, but just speaking personally and from the heart, I really hate this watch. They also don't come on bracelets, I don't think. I don't know, to be honest with you. I'm pretty sure they don't. I should probably know that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know what? I, I even have more to say about this, but I'll just, this is the last thing I'll say. If you go, this is what really annoys me. If you go onto the Tag Heuer website and you pull this up, what you'll find is that they've made the watch tell the correct time. So as we record this episode right now, it's 7.17 p.m. And the hands on this Otavio that I'm looking at are reading on 7.17. And I think they spent more time making this than they did on the entire watch and probably their entire portfolio. You know, here's all you need to know about these watches because I I just hopped on to, to see what the deal is. As a part of the sort of the spec sheet or whatever you want to call it, you know, the brag section of of the website for this watch. They mentioned that it comes with a complimentary travel pouch. And all this and yours can be yours for the low price of three easy payments of $19.99. Yeah, I mean, look, Hoyer has always been, or I mean, I shouldn't say it's always been. It started out as a tool watch. It was priced at, uh, it was priced lower than Rolex. Um, wasn't the cheapest watch on the, on the market, but it was, it, it did an excellent job of kind of, of, uh, you know, bringing value for what it costs. And, um, I think tag would look at you, you know, straight in the face and say, we're kind of going for the same thing today. We don't want to be the most expensive. We, we want to be a good value alternative to, to Rolex or, uh, you know, kind of in the same way that Omega is, but the designs just fall flat. I mean, they're very uninspired. All of the sort of call-outs to the vintage models are half-cocked. The bezels don't work well. The movement is ugly. The case finishing is inconsistent. Um, All of these strange design cues, you call them out, the double knurling on the crown and also on the pushers to make them look like screw downs. It makes very little sense. The loom is ugly. The font is ugly. the, The dial colors don't really work. Um, it, it's not good. Um, I, I, it, and, and also just to put it in practical terms, the watch, and I didn't know this until you kind of put the thought in my head to go on the website, the retail price of the watch is $6,750. I cannot believe that if you like, I, I don't understand how anyone could choose this watch over a Speedmaster. 
today. It makes zero sense. No, and that's a very apt comparison because can you imagine if this would have evolved with the same level of grace and diligent attention that the Speedmaster did over the last few decades where it would be? Uh, And that maybe brings me on to a broader point, which is that this isn't a totally hopeless cause because the Carrera was in a similar place a few years ago. And although maybe I don't, don't, I'm kind of, I'm not as wowed by it as many people are, but I do think it's at least put the Carrera back in kind of good standing for me as a watch that kind of has something to say and has some unique takes. I, I, I just think the Autavia is well overdue for a redesign. Yeah, I mean, listen, they've taken the right steps, at least in the Carrera line, right? Like they did the skipper thing with Hodinkee, and now they've done the serialized one, which I'm not a huge fan of, but a lot of people in the vintage community appreciate it. They did the rowing blazers thing, which was pretty popular. Um, I I need Jeff Stein to turn his attention from Carrera to Octavia because it needs it bad. Uh, The the vintage models are some of my favorite chronographs ever made. Uh, Like in the last episode, I think I brought up the Carrera, um, you know, the, the Octavia, the, the early executions, you know, like the, the manually wound executions are right there for me and are also much more difficult to find uh, than good Carrera. So the, the watches are near and dear to my heart, and I wish that the, the modern examples could hold a candle. Yeah, save us, Jeff. Um, until he does, you want to move us on to our next topic? Yeah, but you need to remind me what it is because I don't remember. <laughs> Okay. We, we have a point. Yeah. I'll, no, I'll introduce, I'll introduce, and then you can kind of, you can jam on it for a little bit. What we, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about why it took so long for watch culture to catch on in the U.S. compared to Europe and how we can continue to foster it. You know, I think this is a really interesting question because I, I think for a lot of people who have gotten more interested in watches over the course of the last three to five years, I don't know necessarily that they view the U.S. as being behind, but I think people have been interested in watches for slightly longer. I call it at least 10 years or really even, yeah, I mean, I guess 10 years would maybe be the cutoff. But uh, there was there was this pronounced and very stark difference between how watches were viewed in Europe, uh, and even, even to some extent Asia, uh, versus the U.S. It felt like in the U.S., Uh, There was no real interest in independence. There was no real interest in vintage. Uh, And even in the modern market, you had some guys who were interested in Omega and Tag. um, But probably 80 plus percent of the market was Rolex, right? And even with Rolex, you know, probably 80 percent of that was subs. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, we we hear often about the days where you could walk in and buy a Daytona. That was a dog of a watch uh, for Rolex for ages. Um, and it seemed like subs and, and date just kind of led the way for, for many, many years. And so, you know, why, why was this? And as you correctly pointed out earlier this week to me when we were chatting, uh, obviously, uh, the watches are going to be most popular uh, in the areas that are closest to where the watches are manufactured, right? So, of course, that, that plays a, a massive role in it. But I think there's a more interesting discussion to be had than just proximity and geography, right? And, and it's really more of a cultural question. Um, you know, I think in Europe, there's a, there's, it's an older society, right? Like, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that America's been around um, for however long we've been around, 300 years. And, 
you know, that's just a lot less history when compared with the centuries old uh, countries and societies in Europe. And I and I think with the advent of watchmaking, call it in the 20th, uh, I would say even the late 19th century, I think you started to have generations uh, and generations passing down these things. Uh, so they were they became a little bit more ingrained within families. Um, and, and you didn't really see that so much uh, in America, which is a, obviously a much l less established place. Um, and I think, you know, at least in the early 20th century, families were a little bit more focused on building up rather than preserving and, you know, kind of passing down heirlooms wasn't as much of a of focus. Uh, so I think that's a part of it. And then most practically, I think the biggest part of it um, as to why watches came on later here was that there wasn't really a good thought leader uh, that Americans really trusted and felt like gave them access and good information to the space. Then obviously along came Ben uh, Clymer and Hodinkee uh, in the late 2000s. And, and I think that's what really felt like kind of gave people here the trust um, to you know, really step into the world and engage with it, and uh, really start buying and selling pieces. Um, the last thing I think that I really look to is, uh, for better or worse, Europe always seems to be fifteen to twenty years ahead of America in terms of fashion. Um, and I think, and I think that um, you know, there's sort of this natural trickle down effect that when watches were super popular. Uh, back in the 1970s and 80s uh, in Italy and in London and in Paris, it was sort of inevitable that it would take 15 to 20 years for it to really uh, hit in America. And I think that timeline sort of lines up. So th those are really the three things. It's, you know, just age of the countries and societies, access to good quality information and sort of a thought leader, and then third, the sort of natural trickle down where America tends to, to follow uh, Europe in terms of fashion and accessories by, call it, 15 or 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I have a few points to add on to the back of that. It is a really interesting question, and I agree with you. It's more cultural than it is just proximity, uh, the more I contemplated this. And I think you really nailed it, um, talking about there being a tradition of passing down watches in families in Europe, uh, and even in the East to some extent as well. That never really made it here. So just for context, so people know where I'm coming from, uh, compared to many of our listeners, I'm sure I'm a fetus. Uh, I was born in 92. You know, my, my high school years were kind of the uh, mid-late 2000s. Um, and I those are when my earliest watch memories were forming. And I, I spent a lot of time, you know, on forms, uh, you know, sale threads, scouring eBay, stuff like that. Um, but there's never, to at least my knowledge, really been anywhere near that level of tradition of um, a watch being a gift for graduating high school or, you know, getting your first job. I think in America, a watch was for the most part something you bought for yourself as a, as a congratulatory accomplishment or, uh, you know, worse uh, to show off, I think was often the case. And I think because of that, watches kind of got a bit of a black eye over here almost. Um, and it took a really long time to correct that culturally, because when you talked about expensive watches, I think a lot of people just kind of checked out. Uh, that was at least my experience. Uh, and you're quite right. I think two two things really changed that. One was, uh, you know, Hodinkee, Ben, 
and just we as a community having a place to go that wasn't kind of creepy and weird and dingy like the forums were for all those years. And the other part of it, I think too, which really shouldn't be overstated is that what America does best is overreaching social media platforms. Uh, And we innovated the hell out of that space around the time uh, watches were really taking off. And the importance of Instagram, I don't think can be overstated because all of a sudden it gave everyone a place where they could be anonymous, but still identifiable. And it created this like self-interest alignment around expressing your watches or collecting because you became more plugged into the community and more established the more that you did that. And then people started to understand the nuances of these things that it wasn't really just about showing off. It was more about an appreciation for the art form and self-expression or engineering or art or all these different facets that watches encompass that uh, weren't really talked about in the public discourse before that. Um, it's a it's a very particular case. And you know, as someone who spent a lot of time learning about watches in the US at a time when not very many people were, um, the only way I can really describe it to our European friends is imagine being in Geneva or London and being an American classic muscle car enthusiast. That's kind of what it felt like, right? Like cruising down London in a Hemi Cuda with a with a V8 and a hot cam going blub, 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 blub. It was just that weird out of place. You like what you like and you're going to kind of fly that flag proudly. That's what it felt like in those early years. And that's really changed. And I think that's for the best. Um, so that's kind of my take on it. And I think it's also important that we talk about how we continue to expand this space and foster a positive watch community, not maybe even just in the U S but represent ourselves well in the rest of the world. Um, because this is a, this is a podcast with a listenership that extends well beyond our borders. Yeah. A hundred percent. I like the analogy of, you know, being a Londoner collecting American classics. Um, you know, you just sort of feel like an outlier. Um, and, Another thing that's like very subtle, like I I hesitate to say this applies to America generally because it's very likely not the case. So I do think particularly in the watch community and even more particularly in the vintage watch community, I think there's grown a sense that you shouldn't necessarily just look to the value of a watch to determine the type or quality of someone's taste like the watch instead is more of an expression of that taste and in order to like really gain an appreciation for it it almost requires a conversation certain things speak for themselves for sure um however i I do think the community especially domestically has advanced a little bit to understand that um that you know your taste is not necessarily just the watch. You're trying to express your taste with the watch, and that probably sounds very contrived and pretentious and whatever, but it is an important distinction, and I think more and more people are growing in appreciation for it. Yeah, I can expand on that. Uh, and this is probably my Midwest speaking. Uh, I'm a kid from the Midwest, but in short, you know, don't be a dick. Uh, but the longer answer to me is what, what I think makes a watch event fun or what makes interacting with the community fun uh, is the people who are cool. And what I mean by that, I don't, I don't think having a lot of watches makes you cool. I don't think spending a lot of money on one watch makes you cool. I think being excited along the new collector that just got their first Pogue or their first Black Bay makes you fucking cool. I think taking the time to learn so much about one model that you write a collector guide to share with everyone is fucking cool. 
Um, and I think it's particularly awesome to see people who have collected everything and written books and have 12 Jorns at home still get excited about a swatch from the 90s that they've never seen before on the wrist of someone at some collector meetup. It's very easy for this space to become ostentatious very quickly. And the counters to that, at least in my head, are enthusiasm, kindness, and sharing what you know. Yeah, it's you're more looking towards the process instead of the result. Taste is too subjective and personal to just judge, you know, which watches somebody has. I think in order to get a better feel for how they're approaching things, it, it requires a conversation and how deep uh, they can go and how, how deep they're willing to go uh, on watches and what they appreciate and enjoy. That kind of tells you a lot about that person and their taste. So that's how I've always viewed things. They're subtle expressions of taste, um, and it's sort of a small window that you can wear on your wrist into someone's personality and what they appreciate. Mm -hmm. And it's never a better conversation starter at a bar if you see someone wearing something that's actually interesting. It's, I've made so many friends that way and continue to to this day, and it's just a, an extra little facet to life that makes it more beautiful. Um, but Yeah, and I, I think it's so critical to imprint that on uh, folks that are newer to the hobby. I can't tell you how many meetups or shows or whatever that I've been to. And, um, you know, I'm somebody approaches me and maybe makes a comment about what I'm wearing. And the inevitable, inevitable follow-up is, okay, well, what's on your wrist? What are you wearing? And I can't tell you how many times somebody's like looked down and covered their wrist. But oh, that tell breaks me, my like, heart. It's killer, man. And I, you know, I, I hate to think that, you know, maybe they've been in a comparable situation previously and somebody's given them shit for having something entry level or, or whatever. It's like, who cares, man? Like we, we need, we need more bodies. We need more people in the space. We want more people to be enthusiastic. We want more people to have opinions. Um, and we all make mistakes along the way, right? Like, you know, your taste is allowed to evolve and refine over time. Nobody gets it right with the, with the first purchase or even frankly with the first 10, like it, it takes time. It takes scholarship. Like it takes studying, it takes buying and, and making mistakes to, you know, get your collection or taste or whatever you want to call it, like to a point that, um, you know, you, you deem to be in a, in a good place. So, you know, it's, it's an evolving thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll take time for that, um, the, the kind of sentiment that we hold around this. And I think Hodinkee stands for something very similar as well. I think it'll take a, a while for that to make its way into the ethos of the United States more broadly. But I think we're on the right track. And, you know, listeners of this podcast, I would just urge you to uh, be kind to your fellow enthusiasts and be curious and be excited um, and, you know, be a positive member of this little world that we're in because, we represent everyone when we talk to someone who's not into watches about watches, and you have to be very careful around that. So thank you to everyone who does that well. Do we have any other segments to cover that I forgot? Yeah, we do. Uh, we have only wrist left. Oh, okay. We have our first listener submitted prompt, uh, though for reasons that are about to become abundantly clear, they wish to remain anonymous. Uh, it's written in the first person this time, which I quite like. I might request that for now. But anyways, here we go. You are a wealthy sheikh from Kuwait. Your daughter is getting married next year. You want to make a show of generosity and buy your new son-in-law a watch. However, you've always hated this man. He makes your daughter happy, but is in every other way a lazy, entitled, self-centered, see you next Tuesday. You can abbreviate that. He works in finance, but has been independently wealthy since he could walk. The first time he came over to your house, he drank everyone's wine for the meal, 
opened and finished a second bottle, and then threw up in your meticulously cared for garden. You are a man of means and connections. This is revenge. You are therefore seeking to gift a watch which is, on the surface, very generous and thoughtful, but one which, after living with for a bit, is completely awful. <laughs> this prompt made me laugh. I was on the floor after I got this DM. Yeah, it's so funny. It's beautifully written, too. By the way, to, to the listeners, I don't even know who the prompt came from. Only Eric knows. So don't hold me at gunpoint trying to figure it out. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, so who's going first? Why don't you go for it? Okay. So the watch that I wanted to pick, to me, like it would have to be a gift in that it was given um, and would appear to many as something that was very generous and nice. But the goal, right, from the gentleman uh, gifting the watch would be to basically, you know, burden this guy. Um, and to me, for somebody with this kind of personality, uh, I'm talking about the personality of the recipient of the watch, uh, I can think of no greater torture uh, than being gifted something that you know you could turn around and sell tomorrow for millions and millions of dollars. So <laughs> the, the watch that I came up with uh, is, and this is kind of easy, but is the, the Tiffany signed uh, Tiffany Blue uh, 5711 from Patek. Um, I think it would be very funny to like gift the watch to somebody that you hate um, because you know it would torture them because you know that they know what the watch is worth, but that they couldn't sell the watch uh, as it would be extremely inappropriate and rude. The philosophy behind your choice is devious. I love it. <laughs> So yeah, that, that was the first thing that came to mind. I, and by the way, just generally speaking, I love the idea of giving watch, uh, not of giving watches, of giving gifts as burdens. That It's very funny to me because it's kind of <laughs> turning the whole concept on its head, but um, I just get a kick out of it. Yeah, it's a fun thing to think about. Um, okay, I'll, uh, I'll run with this. Uh, my initial approach was via the vector of practicality. Something like the entirely blacked out Speedmaster. I think they call it the dark, dark side of the moon or the dark side of the moon dark or the dark, dark moon side. I, I don't really know. Oh, like he wouldn't be able to read it. Yeah, I've I've played with two of these. And even in bright daylight, it's hard to distinguish. And as soon as you're in any kind of like in a restaurant or inside a hotel, whatever, it just becomes entirely unlegible. Um, and then I thought you could take that a step further and go with a Vanda Black Moser. But I love Moser too much for one to wind up on the wrist of this guy. So I just I axed that that thought process. The dark, dark side of the moon is almost like a Moser. Like it's almost a joke or, or like a troll. Yeah, it, it takes the best parts of the Speedmaster and just gets rid of them. But I, I abandoned that thread as soon as I remembered an auction from a few years ago. Max, you'll know this, but Christie sold a cushion case uh, the reference is 3589 Grand Ellipse, uh, Patek Philippe, that was formerly owned uh, by dictator of Libya, Muammar Gaddafi. <laughs> now, Patek commissioned, you know, several production batches of ellipses for both Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and, and many um, less savory characters. Some have quotes, some have crests, some have their signatures on the dial. But there are a handful that are known that are sterile dials, and it's only known that they were in production batches because of their provenance um, and the accompanying paperwork. Uh, I think something like that would be perfect here. I think you are a man of means. So you go to Christie's or Sotheby's or, you know, one of these well-connected auction houses. You try and track down wherever one of these might have appeared from or possibly a buyer. 
Um, and you try and sort out one of these ground ellipses from one of these dictators. And it's a watch that uh, no one was going to know that it was that of a former complete dirtbag except for you. But then here's the real sadistic part of my answer. Uh, these were all integrated bracelets soldered right to the case. And once you make a size adjustment, it's permanent for all of time. So what I would do is get this and then cut it just a link or two short for him so that every time he wears it, he's in at least a mild discomfort. That's so awesome. <laughs> I love that. I think it's brilliant. I do know the watch. Do you happen to know what the Arabic uh, script on the dial means? It actually, so there are a few of these that exist uh, and there are different quotes. Uh, one is something like in the darkest hour you find freedom. There's another one that says uh, the house belongs to the people. Uh, just these random quotes that mean almost nothing, but you you assume mean a lot to some dictator nutcase. Um, yeah, I, I, they're they're not the most amazing quotes, and a lot of a lot of the Arabic writing you find sometimes is just their signature, um, but it, it varies from watch to watch. So, did this watch just like pop into your head? Yeah, <laughs> I was th I was thinking of evil watches, and that's what that's what came right to mind. Yeah, maybe he could get Hitler's reverso. So th okay, this this did cross my mind, and uh, some of you will know this watch auctioned last year at a very small U.S. auction house. I think because none of the major ones wanted to touch this god awful creation. Um, but Hitler's reverso has a swastika on the back, and even for this guy, I think that's a bit too on the nose. It's a little off the nose. Okay, <laughs> fair fair enough. What did that one go for? I don't know. And to be honest with you, I don't care to find out. My hope in life is uh, that this was bought by a Jewish collector and burned summarily. But, you know. Yeah, me and Gabe Benador talked about this a little bit because it was getting chatted or it was getting talked about in the media a little bit by some other podcasts. People were saying, like, you know, who would want to buy this? And I kept thinking in my head, it would be sick if a Jewish person bought this and just like, you know. I mean, honestly, I think even wearing it would be a, an insanely good troll. But at a, at the minimum, you could destroy it, <laughs> and it would be it would be great because you know you'd be rolling in his grave. Uh, but anyways, it's a topic for a different time. Yeah, we we've gotten onto the Nazis. I think we should end this podcast. <laughs> Wait, no, I want to Google it real quick and see what it went for. It like, okay, we'll tell the audience. By the way, while Max is Googling, I'll just add that this wasn't a JLC, and JLC have denounced all association with this watch. It's an unbranded dial. Um, it's probably um, from their manufacturer. But uh, just just to clarify, uh, it's kind of the, the Reverso case was not as proprietary back then as it is today. And there were many different manufacturers that were making Reverso styled cases. And uh, this is one of them. But uh, it, its roots in terms of where it was actually produced are still rather opaque. Um, all right. So I believe it sold for 1.1 million. That destroys some of my faith in humanity. But what's even more amazing is they have the estimate at two to four million. <laughs> That's crazy. What's the name of this auction house? Alexander Historical Auctions in Chesapeake City, Maryland. All right, Alexander, clean up your fucking act. <laughs> you know what would have been big of them is to not take a commission. Uh, or to take <laughs> fees on the watch. You know, like that would have been kind of a nice tip of the cap. Anyway, we, we should probably wrap this up. But yeah, I think we've reached the it's, end. It's It's been fun, my friend. <laughs> Until next time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Sorry, listeners, for that uh, rather unfortunate end, but I hope you enjoyed. Uh, we'll see you again for episode four. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.